1: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicidal ideation, murder, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. When Donna Cole picked up the ringing phone and heard Barbara Cogan's voice on the other end of the line she prepared herself for a lengthy diatribe. Donna adored Barbara. She considered her to be one of her closest friends, but lately, Barbara wasn't much of a conversationalist. Every time they spoke, she managed to change the subject to her estranged husband, George, and their unpleasant divorce. Not that Donna could blame her. George's affair had thoroughly humiliated Barbara. Donna hated to see her friend so distressed, and she felt obligated to give Barbara whatever support she needed. But today, Barbara wasn't in the mood to air grievances. She sounded strange, almost frantic. Instead of complaining about George, she brought up Luanne Fratt. Luanne was a mutual friend of theirs, who had been charged with murder after stabbing her husband to death. She was later acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. Donna grew uneasy as Barbara asked for the name of Luann's defense attorney, just in case she needed one. Donna knew that there must be a reasonable explanation for Barbara's request. She was certain that Barbara could never hurt anyone, even George, but she remained unnerved by the tone she heard in Barbara's voice. Barbara didn't just sound upset she sounded like she was on the verge of panic. Donna couldn't help but think about how much Barbara had changed over the last two years, how fragile she seemed, like anything could push her over the edge. Hi. I'm Laney Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, Last week, we discussed how George Cogan and Barbara Siegel met in 1961, married in 1964, and moved to Puerto Rico, where George's family ran a multi-million dollar business empire. The couple lived in San Juan for nearly 25 years, raising two sons and working together to manage the Cogan family hotels, casinos, and department stores. In 1988, 44-year-old Barbara wanted a change of pace, so she asked 46-year-old George to relocate to New York City. There, they opened a high-end antique shop called Kogan & Company. Barbara hired 26-year-old publicist, Mary Louise Hawkins, to oversee the store's PR. A month later, Barbara was shocked to discover that George and Mary Louise were having an affair. George moved in with Mary Louise and announced his intention to marry her. Two months later, Barbara filed for divorce. The divorce proceedings progressed slowly over the next two years, during which time Barbara grew increasingly bitter and angry. She was convinced that George was concealing assets from her and she was terrified that the divorce would leave her broke. She hired Manuel Martinez, an attorney with a background in Puerto Rican law to help her uncover any secret property George owned on the island. But Manuel seemed more interested in a quick payday than in helping Barbara through a lengthy divorce. He encouraged Barbara's paranoia, convincing her that she'd never get her fair share of the couple's assets as an ex-wife. She'd have much better luck as a widow. In this episode, we'll talk about how George and Barbara's marriage came to an abrupt end in 1990, leading to a criminal investigation that took nearly 20 years to resolve. By October of 1990, 49-year-old George Cogan believed he had come up with a divorce settlement offer that would please his wife. The agreement would give her half of his estate, which he roughly estimated to be worth about $2 million at the low end and $12 million at the high end. Today, that would be equal to a range of $3.9 to $23.4 million. George asked Barbara to meet him to go over the settlement. Barbara was reeling from both the end of her marriage and money worries. The court had frozen the couple's assets during the divorce proceedings. She agreed to meet George to review his settlement offer, but she didn't trust him, and she was already looking for a different way out of her marriage, one that would guarantee her a $4 million payout. Sometime in mid October, before meeting with George to discuss the settlement, Barbara took a trip to Puerto Rico. During that trip, she borrowed a large sum of money from her parents. She then made a payment to her attorney, Manuel Martinez, in the amount of $100,000. They agreed that Manuel would keep half of the money and use the other fifty thousand to hire a hitman to kill George Cogan. In a study of homicides committed in Australia between 2010 and 2012, researchers found that female murderers often have different motivations than male ones. Some of the most common drivers for male homicides were hate, jealousy, revenge, and thrill. In contrast women more often killed for personal gain. Belinda Parker, a senior research assistant in criminology at Queensland University of Technology, stated that female homicides were mostly carried out for insurance payouts, assets, or due to being removed from a will following a divorce, and generally involved the partners of the women. In a separate Australian study, looking specifically at murder-for-hire cases, Researchers found that 20% involved romantic relationships gone wrong, and 16% were financially motivated. For Barbara, both factors were at play. Once Barbara agreed to the plan of hiring a contract killer to go after her estranged husband, Manuel hired a private investigator to follow George and learn his daily routine. The investigator noted that George took frequent morning walks between 9.15 and 9.30 a.m., On the night of October 22, 1990, Barbara and George spoke over the phone. They confirmed their meeting to discuss the settlement for the following afternoon. Barbara later said that the conversation was amicable. The next morning, around 9.30 a.m., George left the Upper East Side apartment he shared with Mary Louise and made a quick run to the grocery store around the corner. The trip was less than half a block. After picking up a few items, he set out for the walk home. Across the street, the racket of construction workers' equipment masked the street noise around George. He heard nothing as a man wearing a dark jacket and a neon yellow cap approached him from behind. Without a word, the man pulled out a gun and fired three shots into George's back. George collapsed on the sidewalk. The gunman stepped past him calmly walking away. A housekeeper on her way to work witnessed the gunman stepping away from George's body. She saw him shove a weapon back into his waistband. They made eye contact and she froze in fear, but the gunman continued on. He picked up his pace as he neared the end of the block until he was lost in a crowd of pedestrians. George lay prone on the pavement, just a few feet away from the entrance to his apartment building. Within moments of the shooting, the doorman, Mose Crespo, spotted George on the ground. Mose raced outside to find George bleeding and barely conscious. George told Mose he'd been shot, but that he hadn't seen the shooter. He asked to speak to Mary Louise. Then, as Mose stood up to run for help, George said, "'I'm dying.'" Mose ran inside to call the police. After alerting them to the shooting, he rushed to Mary Louise's apartment. Mose didn't want to give her the bad news. He told her only that George was outside and that he wanted to talk to her. Mary Louise could tell by the way he was behaving that something was wrong. She followed Mose outside and froze at the sight of George. Then she began to scream. An ambulance and police quickly arrived on the scene. As she watched the paramedics administer first aid, Mary Louise became hysterical. Bystanders had to restrain her and guide her back into the apartment building. As she left, she cried out, it was the wife, his wife did it. Medics meanwhile loaded George onto a gurney and took him to the hospital for surgery. Doctors attempted to remove the bullets still lodged in his chest. Back at her apartment, Mary Louise was in shock, but she managed to call George's sister, Myrna, to tell her to meet her at the hospital. Myrna then contacted George's sons. 23-year-old Scott had to make quick arrangements to fly to New York from Puerto Rico. His younger brother, 22-year-old William, already lived in the city. He came to the hospital right away. Immediately after he arrived, William contacted Barbara, He told her that George had been shot. Barbara was determined not to let herself unravel. She had always prided herself on being tough and resourceful. George's affair hadn't just upended her life, it stripped away her self-image. Barbara was forced to face the truth that she wasn't as strong as she had previously thought. She didn't like the frantic, vulnerable woman she'd become. For two years, she had wanted George to pay for what he had done to her. But now that the day had come, it hardly gave her any satisfaction at all. Instead, she felt crushed under a wave of anxiety and grief. She agonized over everything she'd lost. Paradoxically, even though it was her fault that George was in the hospital, Barbara wished that she was there with him. It should be her standing by his bedside. It should have been her getting comfort and support from her sons and George's family. It wasn't fair that George was the one who had acted inappropriately, but she was the one cast out. As the afternoon dragged on, Barbara grew increasingly angry. She was angry with herself for being so weak, with George's family, who had abandoned her, and with Mary Louise, who had stolen everything from her. But most of all, she was angry with George for still being alive when he should be dead. William asked his mother to join them at the hospital, but she was hesitant to show her face. She told him, I don't think I should go. What with Mary Louise there, it might be uncomfortable. Over the next six hours, George remained in surgery Barbara repeatedly called William to ask for updates on his condition. She also called a hairdresser friend of hers to come over to style her hair so that she would look her best if she changed her mind and decided to go to the hospital. Ultimately, she stayed home. She was still at the apartment when the hospital called just after 4 p.m. Because Barbara and George remained legally married, she was still his next of kin, therefore, She was the first to learn that George had died from his injuries. Phone records show that an hour and a half later, Barbara placed a call to her friend, Donna Cole. She was calling to ask about their acquaintance, Luann Fratt, who had recently been acquitted of murder after stabbing her husband. Barbara wanted to know the name of Luann's defense lawyer. Barbara wasn't wrong to worry that she might be seen as a suspect, Investigators immediately concluded that the murder was no robbery or random attack. It bore all the hallmarks of a professional hit. With that settled, the police turned to the question of who hated George enough to have him killed. The obvious answer was Barbara Cogan. When we come back, we'll talk about how Barbara tried to start a new life in the shadow of her husband's death, unaware that the law was catching up with her.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
1: 49-year-old George Cogan and 46-year-old Barbara Cogan were in the process of trying to reach a divorce settlement. Negotiations ended when a hitman walked up behind George on a busy New York street and shot him three times in the back. Barbara was the first to hear about George's death. She refused to speak with reporters or police investigators claiming to be distraught. Her divorce attorney waved off rumors that she was being purposefully uncooperative, saying that it was unrealistic to expect someone to hold an interview so soon after a tragedy. Newspapers printed lurid articles about the real estate tycoon's death in front of the apartment of his mistress. Looking for answers following his violent death, some of these reports mentioned Kogan's possible illegal business deals gambling debts and mob connections. But most articles cast Barbara as the primary suspect. Despite public speculation that Barbara was responsible for the murder, the case against her was not strong enough to lead to any charges. The gunman had disappeared moments after the murder and they never found the weapon he used. Barbara did not reveal any incriminating information when she finally agreed to an interview with police she proclaimed innocence. She played up the idea that George was a ruthless businessman and suggested that an old business partner decided to get revenge. Police may have had reservations about Barbara's story, but they had nothing beyond circumstantial evidence to go on. When it became clear that she was not going to be placed immediately under arrest, Barbara began to focus on other concerns. She discovered that George's will left her the legal minimum amount of money entitled to a spouse, a third of his estate. When Barbara wouldn't stop talking about money, her son Scott finally snapped at her. There are more pressing issues. We have to bury him. Three days after his murder, George was buried. His family gathered for the service but Mary Louise did not attend. She later said the decision was devastating, but she worried that her presence might create a media circus. Without Mary Louise there, Barbara reclaimed her status as the primary woman in George's life. She dutifully acted the part of the grieving widow, telling mourners that despite their tumultuous final years, she was grateful for all the good times in their marriage. It was easier to feel kindly towards George now that he was dead, especially since Barbara soon welcomed a sudden influx of cash. Before George's death, Barbara had dutifully checked with his insurance companies to make sure she remained the beneficiary on his life insurance policies. Because George's death was inherently suspicious, the insurance company was required to conduct an investigation prior to paying out the full amount. Even so, in 1991, a year after the murder, the company gave her a partial payment of $2 million while it completed its inquiry. The money was enough to ease Barbara's worries that she would be left in poverty and she could finally return to the life she felt she deserved. While Barbara stepped back into her world of luxury, she seemed to forget her partner in crime, Manuel Martinez. Manuel Was the only person who could definitively link her to George's death. Unfortunately for Barbara, Manuel did not have the discipline to remain quiet. The secret did not weigh on him. In fact, he seemed to take enjoyment from the fact that he had taken down a rich adulterer and gotten away with murder. In July of 1992, Manuel was hanging out at a bar with a friend, Carlos Piovanetti. The men were drinking heavily when the Kogan case came up. Carlos was familiar with the case and knew that the police investigation had gone nowhere. Something about Manuel's behavior told him that the lawyer knew more than he was letting on. So over shots, Carlos pressed Manuel to spill everything. Finally, Manuel said, if we talk about it, I don't ever wanna discuss this with you again. Then, according to Carlos, Manuel revealed how he encouraged Barbara to agree to have someone murder George. Once he had her approval, he hired an acquaintance named Paul Prosano to do the job. Martinez wasn't present for the murder, but when he told Carlos the story, he gleefully recounted George's last moments. He acted out the shooting and mimed George's death, clutching his hands to his heart, and pretending to fall on the floor. The murder didn't bother him because as far as he was concerned, George was a bad man who deserved to die. According to criminal psychology expert, Shad Maruna, the majority of criminals make excuses to rationalize why their crimes were justified. Maruna explained, Individuals tend to use a very consistent and discernible number of post-hoc rationalizations to account for what they did. Maruna referred to a list created by 1960 sociologists David Matza and Gresham Sykes citing common rationalizations used by criminals to condone their bad behavior. The list includes the tactic of blaming the victim, Maruna stated that under this rationalization, offenders define their own actions as a form of rightful retaliation or punishment, thereby claiming the victim does not deserve victim status. After Manuel Martinez described George's death to Carlos Venetti, the men moved on to other topics of discussion, but now Carlos knew everything. And two months later, he was arrested for money laundering facing a 15-year sentence on fraud charges. While being questioned, Carlos thought back to his conversation with Manuel Martinez, and he realized that he might have some information the police wanted. His instincts were correct. When he brought up the Cold Cogan case, investigators were quick to recruit Carlos as a police informant. The district attorney's office made Carlos a deal they'd seek the minimum sentence on his fraud charges if he'd help put away the crooked lawyer, Manuel Martinez, for murder. Carlos agreed. But even with Carlos's help, the case proceeded incredibly slowly. Investigators wanted more than just Carlos Piovanetti's word before seeking an indictment. It took another three and a half years before they found another strong lead. Police obtained a recording of a conversation between two associates of the alleged Kogan hitman, Paul Persano. In this recording, Persano's friend said that she saw him discard a weapon with a description similar to the gun used in the Kogan murder. A month later, detectives made more progress when they interviewed Manuel Martinez's ex wife, Beatrice Oyer. In this 11 hour interview, Beatrice told police that her ex-husband admitted to being involved in George Cogan's death. Prosecutors now had enough evidence to take the case to the grand jury. In June of 1996, Manuel Martinez was indicted for murder. But at that point, the case hit yet another roadblock. In the preceding months, Manuel learned that police had connected him to the Cogan murder, And rather than waiting to be arrested, he fled the country, relocating to Mexico City. While trying to avoid one legal entanglement, he quickly found himself in another. Soon after moving to Mexico, Manuel was arrested on drug charges and sent to prison. Prosecutors were on their way towards building a substantial case against Manuel Martinez, which in turn directly implicated his client, Barbara Cogan but they would have to wait until Manuel completed his prison sentence in Mexico before they could pursue it. While Manuel sat in a Mexican prison, Barbara Cogan faced her own troubles. She found herself once again plagued with financial anxiety. In the summer of 1996, around the same time Barbara's former lawyer was being indicted, her insurance company concluded its investigation of George Cogan's death. Unable to prove that Barbara was involved in the murder, the insurance company closed the matter and issued the balance on George's life insurance policy. Barbara was initially happy with the payout, but she soon learned that without a steady income, she was quickly losing money she couldn't seem to control her excessive spending. Financial records indicate that she was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on travel, apartment renovations, and cosmetic surgery. Barbara's purchase habits may have been driven by greed, but may have also been her way of coping with feelings of guilt after George's death. The Review of General Psychology recently published an article by academics Grant Donnelly, Ryan Howell, Masha Kasenzova, Kathleen Vose and Roy Baumeister. Their research suggested that compulsive spending may be a way for people to escape negative emotions and emotional distress. The paper stated that these individuals seek to minimize emotion, especially unpleasant emotion. They further called overspending an expression of the materialistic desire to escape from one's current self via acquiring tangible goods. Barbara's insecure financial position caused her to lash out at others. She even contacted Mary Louise Hawkins, sending her late husband's former lover a letter. In this correspondence, Barbara demanded that Mary Louise return several pieces of jewelry that George had given her. Barbara believed they had been taken from the Kogan & Company store and were therefore communal property that George was not entitled to give away. Mary Louise did not respond to the letter. She had moved on with her life. A few years after the murder, she married and then moved to London. Instead of starting an argument with Barbara, Mary Louise turned the letter over to the police. Two years after receiving the balance of the life insurance payout, 55-year-old Barbara filed for bankruptcy but she was careless in keeping track of all of her assets and her bankruptcy petition contained many errors and omissions. It was eventually denied in 2001. Those close to Barbara acknowledged that she did not handle the bankruptcy proceedings well. Just as the divorce had caused Barbara to act out in erratic ways, bankruptcy proceedings caused her similar stress. During one deposition, she even declared that she was going to commit suicide. Her troubles deepened when her apartment owner sued her for unpaid rent. She was then subject to a second lawsuit from George's brother, who claimed she owed him money he had invested in their businesses. These legal problems took an immense toll on Barbara's emotional state, but the following year, 2002, she seemed to regroup. When Barbara looked back on the last few years, she realized she had been floundering All the reckless spending had been a cry for help, an attempt to recapture some sense of the old Barbara. But she realized now, in the aftermath of George's death, that she had forgotten an essential part of herself. Barbara had always loved to keep busy. She had worked by George's side throughout their marriage. He was credited with being the business tycoon, but she had put in years of her own labor to help build him into a success. Barbara liked to think that she was full of good ideas and ambitious enough to pull them off. It had been her suggestion to open their store, Kogan and Company, and she was sure it would have been a success had it not been derailed by infidelity. After that heartbreak, Barbara lost her drive, but she felt determined to get it back. Enough time had passed and she was ready to prove to herself that she could do it alone. She was ready to show everyone that she had skills of her own and didn't need to coast on the Kogan family name any longer. In 2002, Barbara obtained a sales position on a Caribbean cruise line selling high-end cosmetics to passengers aboard the ship. Her manager was impressed with her work ethic and success rate. She split her time between the Caribbean and New York, When she was in the city, she kept busy as a saleswoman for other luxury brands, including Bergdorf Goodman. In 2003, Barbara married investment advisor Arthur Bodine, but the couple divorced two years later. Friends said she expressed regret about her second marriage, calling it a mistake, but she spoke lovingly about her first husband. None of these friends remotely considered that she might have been involved in George's murder. But in 2007, 17 years after George's death, 64-year-old Barbara would finally be forced to confront her past. Coming up, we'll talk about the return of Manuel Martinez and how his arrival in the United States put the spotlight back on George's murder. Now back to the story. In 1996, prosecutors secured an indictment against lawyer Manuel Martinez. They accused him of helping his client, Barbara Hogan hire a hitman to kill her husband. But at that time, they were not able to arrest Manuel because he was serving time in a Mexican prison on drug charges. 11 years later, in March of 2007, 56-year-old Manuel Martinez had completed his sentence. New York law enforcement officers sprang into action, requesting his extradition from Mexico. As soon as he was released, New York officials arrived to place Manuel under arrest. He was escorted back to the United States and detained at Rikers Island. Prosecutors thought that they could strike a deal with Manuel, hoping that he would agree to testify against Barbara in exchange for a lighter sentence but doing so would require Manuel to plead guilty, which he refused to do. He felt that the case against him was a sham based entirely on circumstantial evidence. Manuel's old friend, Carlos Piovanetti, was willing to testify against him, but Manuel didn't think Carlos was a trustworthy witness given the charges of fraud against him. Manuel also claimed that the prosecution's other main witnesses His ex-wife, Beatrice, had a vendetta against him, so her testimony was biased. Manuel further pointed out that the police had never charged the supposed gunman, Paul Prosano, for murder. By then, Prosano was serving time in prison for an unrelated kidnapping case. None of the witnesses at the scene of George Cogan's murder could positively identify Paul Prosano as the shooter and police never found the weapon used to kill George, so they couldn't trace the gun to any suspect. There was no hard evidence proving that Paul Prosano was the hitman, only Carlos Piavenetti's word that Manuel had hired Prosano. Manuel Martinez thought, if prosecutors didn't even have enough evidence to charge the hitman as an accessory, there was no way they could pin the murder on him beyond a reasonable doubt so he decided he would take his chances with a trial in hopes of being acquitted. Manuel's trial commenced in March of 2008. In addition to Carlos and Beatrice, the prosecution called several witnesses forward to establish a link between Manuel Martinez and alleged hitman, Paul Persano. Rosano's nephew testified that his uncle used to hang out with Manuel at a gun shop, along with other men he described as wannabe gangsters. A former employee testified that Manuel seemed deeply shaken the day after the murder. He further testified that Manuel received a dozen calls from someone named Polly in the days following George's death. Prosecutors brought in George's doorman, Mose Crespo, to describe George's last words. 46-year-old Mary Louise Hawkins was also called to the stand. She described the fallout from her affair with George, including the rocky divorce proceedings and George's constant arguments with Barbara over money. Barbara was not on trial, but prosecutors felt that they had to show Barbara's culpability in order to implicate her lawyer, Manuel a representative from George's insurance company, testified about Barbara's calls to confirm she was still the beneficiary of George's life insurance. Prosecutors described Barbara's cold behavior after George's shooting, how she had refused to visit him in the hospital, and how she had stayed home to have her hair done instead. Even Barbara's son, 42-year-old Scott, testified about his mother's obsession with finances and how emotionally fragile she had seemed throughout the divorce. He tearfully described how angry his mother was when she felt he'd taken his father's side in the divorce, recalling that she told him he should die for what he had done. Throughout Manuel's trial, Barbara refused to talk to the press. Her sister Elaine gave a statement to the Daily News calling the prosecutor's accusations against Barbara ridiculous. The jury, however, believed the prosecutor's version of events. On April 16, 2008, they found 57-year-old Manuel Martinez guilty of murder in the second degree for orchestrating the contract killing of George Cogan. Four weeks later, the court reconvened for sentencing, Manuel made a bitter statement before the judge saying, in spite of the so-called evidence, I maintain my complete innocence in this case. The judge gave Manuel the maximum sentence of 25 years to life in prison. Manuel's sentence wasn't just a blow to him, it was a harbinger of things to come for Barbara Cogan. The prosecution secured Manuel's conviction based on the premise that he conspired with Barbara to hire a hitman. Barbara knew that Manuel's guilty verdict only made it more likely that she would face the same fate. She retained lawyer Barry Levin to handle her defense. He was a confident attorney with a successful track record, but hiring Levin was not enough to ease Barbara's mind. Over the next few months, newspapers and tabloids speculated that an arrest was imminent the stress was too much for Barbara to handle. In November of 2008, Barbara told her friend, Donna Cole, that she wanted to die and that she was making plans to travel to Oregon for physician assisted suicide. Donna took her to Binghamton General Hospital in upstate New York, where Barbara was involuntarily admitted to the psychiatric ward. After a few days, she felt well enough to leave the hospital she turned herself into the police. Reporters were gathered around the courthouse when Barbara arrived for her arraignment. One asked, are you innocent? To which Barbara replied, I'm an innocent woman. Oh, absolutely. On November 25, 2008, 65 year old Barbara was officially arrested and charged with one count of second degree murder. She pled not guilty. Barbara was sent to Rikers Island and, within a week, was transferred to the Elmhurst Hospital prison ward for psychiatric treatment. When she was transferred back to Rikers, she was held in isolated protective custody and placed on a suicide watch. Barbara's attorney tried to arrange for bail, but the judge denied it. She posed too great a flight risk and would remain at Rikers until her trial. Given New York City court's clogged criminal justice system, Barbara had a long time to wait. Her trial was scheduled for April 29, 2010, a year and a half after her arraignment. Barbara supposed that she was too trusting. She never expected George to betray her all those years ago. She never expected her own son to malign her at Manuel Martinez's trial. She never expected the government to invade her privacy, intruding on personal conversations but she had been proven wrong over and over again. Sometimes Barbara felt that the whole world was determined to break her spirit. Nothing she did or said could stop them from hurting her and Barbara was tired of fighting them off. If the world was determined to see her as a monster, she would accept the label. Deep down in a secret place she could barely acknowledge, she knew that there was a truth to what they said. On April 29, 2010, on what should have been 67-year-old Barbara's trial date, the court held a secretive hearing. The hearing was closed off to the media, but several members of the Kogan family were in attendance. During this hearing, Barbara took the stand. She was quiet and dispassionate as she admitted to conspiring with Manuel Martinez to have her husband killed. She did not know the hitman's identity. She knew only that he had done his job. At the end of the hearing, Barbara agreed to plead guilty. In exchange, the court dropped the murder charge against her, instead charging her with manslaughter and conspiracy to commit murder. When the hearing was over, Barbara's lawyers took questions from journalists gathered outside the courthouse. They suggested that the prosecution's case was weak, and that Barbara only accepted the guilty plea because of her fragile mental state. She wanted to put the ordeal behind her for the sake of her children, but for George's family, the guilty plea was vindication. At long last, it was an affirmation that justice would finally be served. Emotions were high during Barbara's sentencing hearing in June of 2010. Mary Louise Hawkins did not attend but she sent a letter excoriating Barbara for her depravity. George Cogan's niece and nephew also spoke heatedly, calling for a hefty sentence that would fit the callousness of the crime. Barbara's son, Scott, wept as he expressed love for his mother, but asked the court to impose a sentence that honored his father. After hearing family members' prepared statements, the judge handed down a sentence of 12 to 36 years in prison. Barbara had gotten her revenge in 1990. 20 years later, she faced the consequences. The judge asked Barbara if she wished to say anything. She quietly responded, no. Barbara Cogan is currently serving her sentence at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in Westchester County, New York. She will be eligible for parole on November 21st 2020, at age 77. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on this story, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Millionaire's Wife, The True Story of a Real Estate Tycoon his beautiful young mistress, and a marriage that ended in murder by Kathy Scott, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crime's a Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Crime's of Passion is written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs.